welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, as always, as we get started, just a quick word from our great sponsor, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. Well, a big thank you to all the the residents and learners who applied to be a, a part of the uh, literature review series, kind of a new um, kind of initiative that we're going to try on the podcast. And the response was absolutely amazing. It was it was humbling to see um, how many of you wanted to be involved with this new initiative. I loved some of the creativity um, that was on display. Um, the audience, y'all are in for such a treat. The to the People that I've been able to talk to um, between first, second year residents, even students, um, it is it's going to be great. The yeah, I think I sent a tweet about this. The the future of pharmacy is looking pretty bright from the ones that I've been able to interact with. Um, so each episode is going to feature two guests. We have the tentative schedule for kind of 2021 planned. Um, no spoilers now, um, but. The, the one the one kind of sneak peek is that the first episode's planned for this month in April, so definitely stay tuned there. And today's guest, she certainly needs zero introduction with all she's done for critically ill patients in the profession of pharmacy, but for good measure, guess what? We're going to read one anyway. So Dr. Joanna Stallings is the Medical Intensive Care Unit Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, Dr. Stallings is the pharmacist for the Post-ICU Recovery Center at Vanderbilt, the Vanderbilt Center for Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship, and the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group. Dr. Stallings' research interests include the pharmacotherapy of agents used for analgesia, sedation, and delirium, non-pharmacologic methods used in the prevention of delirium, strategies to facilitate ventilator weaning, post-intensive care syndrome, and fluid resuscitation. She served as the SECM ICU Liberation Committee co-chair this past year, and that's a perfect lead-in because today we are talking about one of her favorite topics, the ICU Liberation Bundle, also known as the ABCDF Bundle. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing great, Nick. Thanks so much for asking me to be on today. I'm so excited. Oh, I think it's going to be fantastic, you know, to, to bring the listeners in, um, in, in one of our first meetings, we kind of, you know, I kind of had a little bit of an outline and I'm guessing trying to keep this talk around an hour has probably been the biggest hurdle of all of this, because if, if anyone's tried to dive into the research, um, you know, you've been involved in so many of the publications for it. I'm sure you could talk for, for hours and hours on this topic, couldn't you? You're right. It's uh, um, I'm very, very passionate about it, so I feel like I could talk about it all day. <laughs> well, let's kind of dive right in here. So, for those who who may be unfamiliar or is kind of kind of getting their the grips on some of the things that happen within the ICU, what is the ABCDEF bundle? Um, so the ABCDEF bundle um, is a bundle essentially that was developed to help implement the guidelines when they came out in 2013 to so the pain, agitation, 
and uh, delirium guidelines. The A stands for assessing, preventing, and treating pain. B is both spontaneous awakening and breathing trials. C is a choice of sedation and analgesia. D is assessing, preventing, and treating delirium. E is early mobility and exercise. And F is family um, engagement and involvement. So um, there's a lot of history behind it. So um, actually, uh, it was uh, initially, like I said, uh, invented essentially to help implement the, uh, the PAD guidelines. But uh, it was revamped a little bit because uh, there was a funder who helped um, gave some money to the Society of Critical Care Medicine. To, um, he's actually the founder of Intel, and he was in the hospital with delirium. And so he was very, very passionate since he had experienced this himself um, in, with regards to uh, the research of this. So he went to the Society of Critical Care Medicine and gave a large uh, amount of money um, to have this essentially studied. And because of that, he made a couple requests. He actually um, was upset because when he was in the hospital, um, uh, that he actually didn't get to have his family around. And so um, he and his wife have a foundation. His name is Gordon Moore, and his wife is Betty, so Gordon and Betty Moore. Um, but essentially, they um, requested that an F be added to the bundle. So historically, it was not only the ABCE bundle, but they had the F um, added. So because of that, um, a giant collaborative was actually um, put together by the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and I was invited to be on the faculty for that. So we actually... Uh, did a study in over like 15,000 patients looking at the implementation of the bundle. So comparing like pre and post and um, seeing what the outcomes were with implementation of that. So now was this something that was SECM looking into kind of this bundle beforehand or was this really spearheaded by by Gordon Moore, kind of like you described, was this kind of an initiative based on his intensive care stay? Or is this something, did he help kind of accelerate it, but it was something that was in the works? It was in the works already because it was like, how do we implement the PAD guidelines? And so that's where the ABCDE bundle had came from. And like I said, he was the one that was responsible for adding the F and gave um, a donation to essentially to SECM to form this large collaborative so that we could help implement this in uh, several different institutions throughout um, the, the U.S. Now, you mentioned that this was created um, in response to help implementing the the 2013 PAD or, or now with the updated thing, the PADIS guidelines. So mm -hmm. do we have... Do we have literature or other guidelines that help really support and justify the use of the of this bundle in our in our ICUs? Absolutely. So this has been studied actually in over twenty five thousand patients at this point. So the big study that I um, mentioned was in like fifteen thousand patients, and it showed that by implementing the bundle, it decreases the it improves, I should say. Um, delirium and coma free days. It also helps with uh, ventilator free days. It uh, gets people out of the hospital faster. It gets them out of the ICU faster. It decreases their uh, chance of being transferred to a facility. And it also decreases their um, the use of restraints as well. And um, before that, Marianne Barnes-Daly, who is a nurse um, and who used to work at Sutter Health um, in California, she had studied this at seven different hospitals um, there and had found similar outcomes. And then more recently, um, there was a study that actually showed that it decreased cost as well. 
which is exciting. So we have, just like I said, it's been studied in over 25,000 patients, and look at all the outcomes that have been helped by implementing the bundle. And not only does it have those patient-centered outcomes that we're really thinking about, but we also have the cost improvements so that our folks in the C-suite um, were able to kind of justify some of the costs that may go into this. So um, it sounds it, it's you're making a strong case, really, that this that this bundle is is more of a should be kind of a standard of care for patients who are receiving mechanical ventilation who are intubated. Um, but I'm guessing that it's still being adopted by hospitals and health systems across the country. Um, what would you say are are barriers to implementation? And then from that, my only follow-up is how many of those are more perceived barriers, things that people think are going to make this bundle complicated when it turns out, you know, maybe maybe not so much? Okay, that's a great question. I mean, I think the biggest barrier, honestly, is that um, it's overwhelming if you look at it. Um, it's just, it's a number of steps, right? It's six different parts, and people just are like, oh, my goodness, how on earth are we ever going to do this? And so I think um, when we're recommending this to people and helping to implement this, it's, you got to start small. So you can pick one letter to start with, try it in a couple patients, and, and then once people see how effective it is, then they're going to be wanting to do this on everybody. And then you go to the next letter. You can't try to tackle it at once. And you can't try to tackle it in every patient or it's going to fail. It's going to be too overwhelming. So I think that's probably the biggest barrier is if you attack it wrong. I think the second biggest barrier is that um, you've got to have a local champion, right? Just because um, I know I can speak to this personally. And I think that like all the different listeners of this podcast can also probably attest to this. But like in our um, medical ICU of Vanderbilt, there is a huge turnover of nurses, you know, and it's not that they don't love working in the medical ICU, mm-hmm. but a lot of them go to school to become nurse practitioners or nurse anesthetists. And so they don't stick around um, that long. And then you have uh, medicine residents who are cycling through the NICU and they're there for like two weeks, right? And so there's tons of learners coming to the NICU. And then I work with 20 different attendings. So there are some of them that are in the NICU literally like once, maybe twice a year. So I think you've got to have somebody who's there all the time. And that's why I'm such a big advocate for pharmacists, like helping to implement the bundle because I'm there every day. And so I can really help um, ensure not only with the keeping of the different disciplines, but to make sure um, that this is happening every day. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And when you actually look into the all the specific points within within the bundle itself, it almost feels like I'm guessing a lot of us are doing some of this on a daily basis. It's just may not be as protocolized or as as regimented in a sense that the that the bundle kind of emphasizes and gives you for some of these different things. Oh, I think you're spot on, absolutely. And I think that's why I like one of our um, big initiatives when I was the co-chair and it's still going on of the ICU Liberation Collaborative was getting this into um, the two biggest EMRs, right? So Epic and Cerner. So now um, it's part of like the base like system um, of Epic that there is an ABCDF flow sheet, um, which helps everybody see what each other is doing with regards to the specific letter that maybe um, that nurses more focus on or respiratory therapists more focus on or mm-hmm. the pharmacists more focus on. Um, and we're working on getting in in Cerner. And our next goal is to work on the PEED side of it for both the EMRs as well. 
So are there any patients that should be excluded from the ICU liberation bundle, um, depending on, you know, why they're ventilated or, or other, you know, things that are happening within their critical illness, or should this apply to everybody? That's a great question. I um, think that we it was very important. We really wanted to emphasize when we started the ICU liberation collaborative that this should be done in both ventilated and non-ventilated patients. And I think people forget that sometimes. Like, obviously, you can't do a spontaneous awakening trial or spontaneous breathing trial in somebody who's not ventilated, um, but you can do the other parts, right? Like, everybody needs to have pain assessments. Everybody needs to have um, delirium assessment and be mobilized and have their family involved. And so I think that's one important point to remember. And then obviously if someone is going a palliative, um, more the palliative route, then you're not going to apply this to them. But other than that, it really should be applied to every IC patient every day. And so in that scenario, you know, for example, if we're, if we're deeply sedating somebody, right, for, for severe ARDS, for example, right, we might not be doing, is that a scenario where, yes, you might not be implementing each portion of the bundle, but each day we should be going through the bundle and seeing which parts apply to those patients and then implement them when it's appropriate? Is that, is that kind of a, a decent summary of what you were saying there? Absolutely. You were spot on. Um, you still, and the these are that absolutely. That's one of the niches that's high, at highest risk, right? For us forgetting them, you know. To we still have to think about every letter in them every day, and make sure that they do have adequate pain control, and that we are assessing whether or not it is safe to turn off their sedation and analgesia every day, and if they meet criteria for the spontaneous breathing trial, making sure they're on the appropriate sedation and analgesia, and I mean, if they need eventually, if they need any sedation or analgesia at all making sure we screen for delirium and when appropriate, eventually making sure that we mobilize them and also keeping their family involved. Now you've hit, you've hit some really great points talking about some of the different portions of the bundle. So I think let's dive in here and let's kind of talk about some, some questions or maybe discussion points on specifically, you know, we'll kind of focus on each letter within the bundle. So we'll start, you know, we'll go, we'll go top to bottom. We'll start with the letter A, you know, assessing pain and analogous sedation is something that, you know, maybe a new term or phrase to some, or maybe something that for people who have been practicing for a long time was something that, you know, we had to learn and kind of um, implement into our um, kind of treatment regimen for critical care patients. But what does analogous sedation mean? Well, essentially, uh, it really means that, so uh, Thomas Strom is who gets that credit for this uh, term. He did a study um, a few years ago, essentially, that he compared continuous infusion of uh, propofol um, compared to intermittent doses of morphine and found that the people that got the intermittent doses of morphine, which was called like no sedation, essentially got off the vent faster. And so now go sedation means essentially using pain meds not only for their analgesic properties, but also for their sedative properties as well. So when I'm teaching my students or residents or even medicine residents on rounds about this, I always tell them that the PAD and the PADIS guidelines are not called that by coincidence because if you don't treat pain, then your patient can get agitated, your patient can get delirious too. And so we always, always, always want to think about treating pain first. 
So what are some common misconceptions about analogous sedation or maybe just more broadly saying on kind of the treatment or prevention of pain? Um, because I know the first time that I that I recommended, you know, just like in that scenario of just intermittent opioid dosing or things for for um, sedation for a ventilated patient, I definitely, I, I got a strange look the first time and I'm guessing you probably do as well when that happens. So what are some, what are some things, some misconceptions we can, we can lay to rest here? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that we could talk about with this. So I think that um, quite often patients do okay with just intermittent doses of um, analgesics. And so kind of how I usually handle it is if they, they need more than three doses um, in an hour, then we'll put them on a continuous infusion. Um, I think that uh, on, on the flip side, I think that sometimes we're guilty maybe more in the medical ICU than other units. I think it's more um, obvious in other units like trauma or CV surgery or surgical ICU that patients have like avert sources of, of pain, you know, like it's very obvious, like they have fractures or they have a burn, mm-hmm. you know, versus in the medical ICU, I feel like sometimes we forget about their pain, unless it's like rip-roaring pancreatitis, you know, but all these patients have sources of pain, like they're intubated, the bed's uncomfortable, they have a Foley catheter in, um, we're testing uh, their blood glucose, they might have a chest tube, like there's so many different sources of pain, so I feel like uh, people forget that sometimes, they think that, hey, maybe they don't need pain meds necessarily, but I think that like you had attested to, I think an sedation is very important because sometimes if you treat their pain, then they don't need their agitation treated. And I think it's also um, important to remember that opiates absolutely are the gold standard that we want to think about with regards to treating pain in the ICU per the PAD guidelines. But I also think that in the PAD guidelines, that they um, extensively review all the non-opiate therapies you can use with regards to treatment of pain, and we can't forget that. I think it's very important that we remember um, that scheduling acetaminophen, the background of these people, is quite helpful, and that quite often, um, especially with COVID now in particular, like that we have like neuropathic pain meds that are quite effective in these patients as well. And I think that it's just important to remember that opiates are important, but that we need to have some other um, non-opiate therapy in the background to help decrease utilization of this. I love that you highlighted the um, the challenge of of recognizing pain less in the surgical patients where you know they just had a thoracotomy or we know that they have you know an open tib fib fracture where we know those sources of pain and I think a lot of the literature shows that some of the things that we would consider more routine things within the ICU turning you know placing or removing chest tubes some of those things we may underestimate the amount of pain that those can cause and sometimes just the breathing tube itself can cause pain you know Maybe it was a traumatic intubation, for example. So I think that's a really good point to highlight that pain, these patients may be experiencing pain, whether we may be acutely aware of it or not. Agreed. I think it's a big problem. And I also think that um, we, when we do put these people on um, opiates, that the, the other thing that we need to remember is, now I'm a little biased here because I'm from Tennessee, so we're one of the worst states with regards to the opiate epidemic, but I also think that long-term we need to be thinking about that as we are transferring patients, um, if we're extubating them, as we're transferring them to the floor and things that we need to remember um, to minimize that just because um, we don't want to contribute to that um, when it's not needed as well. 
it create plans for kind of titrating down or or creating you know kind of um, uh, little mini power plans or things to help wean off of those things so that we're not kind of creating contributing to the problem. I think that's I think that's important. You know, I'm in Indiana, so we certainly have our own issues, but I think. I think no matter what state you're in, I think that's something that's um, at the forefront of everyone's mind. I, I completely agree. I agree. So the importance of pain, we we understand that, assessing and treating that pain for A. Now let's kind of shift here to B for a second and, and talk about our SATs and SBTs. Um, so why are spontaneous awakening and breathing trials so important? And maybe, you know, what, what happens when we do an awakening and breathing trial for the patient? Like walk us through kind of what does that mean in, in the patient's kind of day-to-day world in their morning? Okay. Um, so how we set this up, like in our medical ICU, is the night shift nurse will assess the patient and determine whether or not it's safe and to turn off the sedation and analgesia, and that's very important. It's not just the sedation we're turning off with the spontaneous awakening trial or SAT, but it's also the analgesia. So they relay that information to the day shift nurse once they get there. And once they're settled, then unless the patient would meet an exclusion criteria, like they're paralyzed or um, would be one example, then the, then the nurse will turn off the sedation and the analgesia. So in the meantime, the respiratory therapist is assessing the patient, determining whether or not it is safe to turn off uh, or to put the patient on a spontaneous breathing trial. So essentially that means putting them on like five of P, five of pressure support. So they're making sure that their FI2 is not more than 50%, that they're not on high-dose pressors. And if if they wouldn't meet any exclusion criteria, they would put the patient on a spontaneous breathing trial. And so um, we know that Tim Gerard published a study in Lancet in 2008 that showed um, by pairing the spontaneous awakening trial with the spontaneous breathing trial, the patients spend three fewer days on the vent. They spend four fewer days in the ICU, four fewer days in the hospital, and they have a 14% reduction in one-year mortality. And that, to me, is huge. And the number you need to treat is only seven. So I give a lot of lessons, or lectures, I should say, um, to nurses. Um, I'll give one like once a month specifically on pain, agitation, delirium. And this is one of my favorite statistics to teach them because number needed to treat is seven. So if they do this in seven patients, right, then they are saving a life. And so I like to really emphasize that when I'm trying to empower nurses on why this is so important. That's an incredible stat. They do this, you know, Sunday through Saturday. And one of those days they're going to help save somebody. That's, that's awesome. Now, you do a lot of education here, and it sounds like, especially for this portion, a lot of it's going to go to our nursing colleagues. I'm guessing this is a question that's come up, but what would you say to a nurse who may be hesitant in holding their analgesia um, or sedatives? For a patient who's been you know, at their target sedation goal, we've been RAS of negative one for the last 18 hours. We, we finally found our sweet spot. So what would you say to them if they're hesitant on, you know, kind of awakening a sleeping bear in a sense and, and not wanting to, to hurt, you know, to, to ultimately hurt them or cause agitation? So, um, I mean, this happens a lot, as you can imagine, just because, like we talked about before, there's like so much turnover of nurses. So they have to get comfortable with doing this every day. And so I like to quote um, Yaya um, Shahidi's data, right, who said, or showed essentially that um, more sedation means more time on the vent 
And historically, we thought, oh, it's fine. I can deeply sedate my patient for a couple days and it'll be fine, right? And he showed that that increases mortality. So I like to tell nurses both those things and just really empower them that we need to try this. We owe this essentially to the patient to try to turn this off. How can, how can us, you know, pharmacists who are on the unit, how can we help our patients succeed in passing, you know, our spontaneous awakening and breathing trials? Um, so I think we as pharmacists, honestly, like what we can do with regards to that is trying to have them on um, minimal sedation as possible <laughs> to begin with, right? So we are the drug specialists. And so um, using either um, propofol or dexamethasone, I think, is key because that's lighter sedation. Um, I know that, like, one of the biggest roles um, I have absolutely with regards to sedation every day is making sure um, that patients are an appropriate RAS target, so Richmond Agitation Sedation Score. So making sure that whatever the target is, um, which the provider has to enter every time um, that they uh, enter a new sedation order and what the patient is at matches. So in other words, making sure we ultimately want our patients to be a target RAS of zero to negative one. There are obviously cases, especially with COVID, where we would have deeper sedation goals. But just making sure every day that the patient's RAS goal, um, their actual RAS and their target RAS correlate. So in other words, if their target RAS is zero, but their actual RAS is negative four, like talking to the nurse and the whole team, like, well, why is our patient so deeply sedated? So encouraging um, them essentially to turn that off and try and, and see what the patient can do not on sedation. And and we'll we'll talk more about this, but I think a real key and a a point that I've um, identified from from just the the brief amount we've talked so far is that this is really a multidisciplinary endeavor, and it takes the entire team, you know, from you know physicians to the nurses to the pharmacists, the respiratory therapists, everybody to really help with this. I think that's something that I've gathered just from talking about letters A and B. Oh, you're absolutely spot on. The whole team has got to be involved. We can't practice in our own little silos. Like everybody's got to talk together to make this and work together to make this uh, successful. So letter C is choice of sedation. And that's a kind of a perfect lead in because you mentioned us as pharmacists. That's one of our, you know, we're the medication experts. So, you know, you primarily work in a medical ICU, and I think a lot of times for, for people listening, if they work in a MICU or a mixed ICU, I think a lot of our intubated patients, right, are commonly, you know, in septic shock, maybe receiving IV vasopressors. And so commonly, you know, a lot of times our medical teams will debate what sedative we should use. And, and the PADIS guidelines say that both dexmedetomidine and propofol are guideline recommended and can be first-line agents. So you were involved in a recent study that we'll talk about in just a sec that kind of um, looked into this. But before that study came out, did you have did you have a favorite kind of go-to agent, whether it was dexmedetomidine or propofol? So um, this kind of changed a little bit over time, right? So um, it's absolutely my favorite two sedatives, if you were going to ask me, are propofol and dexmedetomidine. Now, historically, um, dexmedetomidine was much more expensive than propofol. Mm -hmm. Now, now that is not as much an issue of my institution. I want to pat the uh, pharmacy purchasing um, department on the back because I think they do an awesome job. But 
propofol and dexamethasone being at my institution are roughly the same cost. So I also think that um, historically, um, and even now, honestly, when you really need to deeply sedate a patient with severe ARDS, you're not going to get there um, if you have somebody on dexamethasone versus um, you could get there um, if you have somebody on propofol. And the other consideration, once again, if you have someone who has very severe ARDS and you may have to paralyze them, then obviously you're not going to use dexamethasone. It doesn't have amnestic properties. That wouldn't be appropriate. So then I'm obviously going to go propofol. So prior to like the cost difference, I might have swayed more towards propofol, but obviously trying to always do in white sedation. Um, but then if you have like maybe like the, the trauma patient who the only thing that's preventing them from being uh, extubated is, is agitation, then absolutely we might pull dexamethasone out initially just because you can put it on them, extubate them, and then turn it off. So um, I think they both have niches. Now um, I'm really just trying to decide, like, um, will somebody tolerate uh, dexamethasone? Maybe we try it. Maybe they become profoundly um, bricardic, and so we can't use it. Um, so I guess now it just really depends on the depth of sedation that requires um, is how it would determine uh, dexamethasone versus propofol. So you were a member of the of the research group, you know, the things that, that you all are doing at Vanderbilt is just amazing to all of us on the outside looking in. And, and one of the most recent studies that was the one of the, I, I think I'm using the terminology right, one of the late-breaking studies at, at the um, SACM Virtual Congress this year was the was the MENS-2 study. That was a the multi-center randomized double-blind trial where ventilated patients with sepsis received either dexmedetomidine or propofol and kind of looking at days alive without delirium or coma during that 14-day period. So what did you all find and how did that, did that change your um, perception or strategy in terms of initial sedation in these, in these patients? Um, thank you so much for bringing that up. It was really exciting to be um, a part of that and really fall and fun to be involved with that from the the get-go, even like trying to figure out how to blind um, the two uh, drugs with propofol then. So obviously like milky and white, right, yeah. versus the um, Presidex. Like that was really fun to even be a part of those decisions as to how um, to blind the study. How did you do um, that as a quick interruption? How were you able to do that? That's a question that I've wondered. <laughs> so um, interesting enough, so propofol is in a, ba- um, a bottle, right? And the uh-huh. Presidex is typically, or dexamethasone is typically in a bag. And so we put them both in bags, and then we literally put trash bags. I'm not kidding. On both the bags, and then also on the tubing. I'm not <laughs> seriously. And so the nurse obviously was unblinded because we um, they needed to prime the tubing things, and obviously we wanted to prevent like an air embolus. And so um, that's how we would do it. But even like when we were on rounds and stuff, like I always would kind of like if there was a patient that was on study drug, I would remind the nurse like stay study drug because they were so used to it, right? And they knew, mm-hmm. and so it'd be so easy for them to be like, well, um, Mr. Smith is on uh, dexamethasone, you know, at, uh-huh. uh, at one mic per kg per hour. So I had to be like, no, no, no. So I always like, <laughs> tried to preemptively remind them just to be like, they're on study drug at X mils an hour. So, but yeah, um, they uh, historically, like we were like, oh, maybe we could use some like uh, colored tubing for this. But um, once again, with the whole risk for area and stuff, we just didn't think that would be um, appropriate. So this is how we blinded it. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry <laughs> for interrupting, but we had, I, no, that was a great, okay, perfect. A great pearl in there. All right, please, please continue into the, into the men's two discussion there. I loved that. <laughs> 
So essentially, um, this study was conducted to look at um, profile, like you said, versus dexmedetomining, specifically in patients that have sepsis. So it was thought, um, and we had done um, like a secondary analysis of the men's study that showed that dexmedetomining has some anti-inflammatory properties. So secondary to that, we thought that using dexmedetomining in patients with sepsis might be beneficial. And and what we found, though, was there was no difference in uh, delirium coma free days or um, ventilator-free days or a 90-day mortality or their quality of life um, at 90 days between the two different groups. So it really hasn't changed my practice. Um, I still, like, if they need much deeper sedation, I'm going to go towards propofol versus if I can do, um, if I think they'll tolerate light sedation um, and uh, they're not having problems with bradycardia, then I'm going to be more apt to uh, try dexmedetomidine. Yeah, I think this was a a really from a from a methodologic kind of standpoint. I think this is a really really well done study because some of the logistics of this, like literally just trying to hide from all of us who have been in the ICU and know what they look like, just hiding that had to have been challenging. So this was really well done. I'm sure this was was years in the working um, from when the idea was started to when it finally got published. Eight years. Eight years, like basically right after I started at Vanderbilt is when we started working on it. So it really did feel good to see that uh, finally um, be finished and be published. Eight years. I mean, that is just so for all those who are who get frustrated with the, trying to squeeze in research, um, you know, in a, in a year, 18 months, some of these really well done studies take lots and lots of time. That's that's amazing. So. So what is your favorite second or third line medications kind of in the treatment of, of, you know, sedation, or I guess we'd say in the treatment of agitation in this scenario, because in the era of COVID, right, a lot of us experience drug shortages. And then I think, you know, the, the flip side of that is, is that for the patients who are, you know, not everybody is able to just um, be meet their sedation goal with the first agent that we choose. Sometimes we have to get a little creative. So what are some of your favorite drugs in those scenarios? Well, it's hard for me to say favorite, honestly, because they're not my favorite. <laughs> 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 but uh, I'm obviously a big fan. Well, um, in a perfect world, no one would require sedation. But when we need it, um, dexmedetomidine and propofol are obviously my favorites. But you are absolutely spot on. I mean, with covid I mean, a lot of things have been uh, required, you know, like these people have like baseline high triglycerides quite often just because with COVID they had HLA-like features. And so um, they would have such high triglycerides and they would have such severe ARDS that you kind of got um, back up against a wall and you really didn't have another option. Like you couldn't get them dexmedetomidine because they need to be deeply sedated, sometimes paralyzed. So sometimes we unfortunately had to use benzodiazepines and we hated it, um, but we had to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, the benzo that we would quite often use was midazolam just because we were concerned about the propylene glycol toxicity with the higher doses they were requiring, so we would have to avoid um, lorazepam. Um, we know um, that uh, antipsychotics don't work very well uh, for delirium, um, but we still, if somebody is absolutely like agitation is problematic, that's kind of a different ballgame. You brought up drug shortages. We didn't have a lot of uh, um, drug shortages at Vanderbilt, thankfully, but I know a lot of other institutions did. Um, we actually uh, published a paper um, with John Devlin and some other colleagues um, in critical care explorations where one of the um, 
supplements that we put in there, um, I helped develop, which was essentially like a table that walked you through um, what agents we would recommend if there were drug shortages. So um, I think antipsychotics had to come to play here in people that had severe agitation. Like putting those in the background was definitely um, one option that you would consider. Um, other options that you could consider too, depending on that um, drug shortages, um, ketamine. Now, granted, the data in medical ICU patients is terrible, right? The PADIS guidelines <laughs> recommend um, that you can do this in surgical patients. Um, and we honestly have not used it a lot just because, uh, I mean, it's a PPP analog. It can actually make people go absolutely bananas. Yes. And so, but that, I mean, if you really got back up against the wall, that would also be another option. I mean, giving things per tube, if you're really running out of stuff, you can give um, enteral benzos, whether that be enteral lorazepam or diazepam, um, would be another um, consideration. Like my boss told me that he had heard um, that some institutions had gotten in such uh, or in between rock and hard place and essentially were doing things like hormphenicol, believe it or not. Um, so, uh, yeah, depending on uh, what you uh, got or had to do, like obviously some of these uh, things are obviously not what we want to have to do, but um, if you got to sedate your patient, then you got to use what you got. That's where... Uh, that's where the the team really leans on us as pharmacists for some of these ideas, and hopefully that we're we're able to make sure that whatever you know non first line agent we recommend isn't going to cause more harm than good in these scenarios that can be really can be really difficult. So ultimately, you there's no favorite of yours because if they were a favorite, it would be one of their first line meds. Is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly what you're hearing. And I think you're spot on. Like when I go over uh, um, agitation and treatment of it with students and residents, I absolutely go extensively over the difference between lorazepam and midazolam because you're spot on. Like physicians and nurse practitioners are going to ask us, like, how do I pick which one? How do I know which one? And we're the ones that are going to know about the hepatic, the hepatic metabolism or the active renal metabolites and know which specific one is better in which patient. The, the less the less likely or the less commonly that we use that agent, the more the team's going to rely on us to make sure that we're dosing, using, and monitoring it appropriately when we do have to. Absolutely. Now, you, this is one of those scenarios where I, I think I remember in school, if I didn't know an answer, I would kind of... I'd skip that test, that question, because sometimes you'd find the answer to them in the text a little bit later. So I feel like we might have given this away a little bit, but in terms of, we're going to move to D in terms of delirium here. So for patients who are actively delirious, do we have great pharmacotherapy treatment options or is it really that the the primary focus really should be on prevention of delirium? Well, that's, um, we really unfortunately do not have good pharmacologic options. So, um, my research um, group published this study a couple of years ago called the Mind USA study. Mm-hmm. So, this study compared Haldol to the Prazodone to placebo and um, for treatment of uh, delirium and found no difference in delirium and coma free days or um, ventilator free days or mortality. And so, I mean, this has been done, given antipsychotics for delirium has been done for like 50 years, right? <laughs> and so it's always interesting to see something that we knew, everyone knew, was absolutely that right thing to do, um, get thrown out the window. 
So, um, no, I think unfortunately right now we don't have a good pharmacologic agent for the treatment of uh, delirium. I think that um, when I'm teaching people about delirium and both prevention and treatment, we also know antipsychotics uh, don't work for prevention of delirium either, um, based off the REDUCE study and the HOPE ICU study. Um, But I like to teach the mnemonic Dr. Dre. Uh, <laughs> where uh, the first DR stands for disease remediation. So you think about treating their sepsis or their heart failure, their COPD. And then the next is drug removal. So um, stopping, uh, don't give benzos and stop their sedation every day. And don't give anticholinergics in the ICU. They don't need their allergy med or they don't need their med for overactive bladder. They have a fully <laughs> catheter. And uh, using uh, minimizing steroids as much as possible. And then the E standing for environment, so uh, helping normalize their sleep-wake cycle and uh, also um, giving the patient their hearing aids or their eyeglasses um, are, I think, key things that we can do for both prevention and for treatment of delirium. Yeah, this is where none of these are, are glamorous interventions or, or things that, you know, I think a lot of us will recommend, you know, we'll, we'll have antibiotic changes or sedation changes and it's, and they're kind of big moves, but some of these are, they're, they're, um, less in the spotlight, but so, so important. So thinking of home meds and, you know, not only that, but you mentioned the sleep wake cycle, you know, we've had Mojda Hevner on talking about, you know, do they really need their guaifenesin at two in the morning just because we decided to order Q6 at 8am. Right. And so thinking of retiming and some of those things and just doing it all we can non-pharmacologically drugs aren't always the answer. And I think delirium is the perfect example for that. I agree with you. I mean, constipation can cause delirium, right? Yes. And so talking about non-glamorous, I mean, bowel movements, I don't think you can get less glamorous than that. But that's huge. That's so important, right? Like if your patient's not having bowel movements, you could be contributing to delirium. I've said this to a student before. I said, hey, how how agitated would you be if you haven't had, if, if we haven't had one in a week, right? Which is the, that, that's, that's the issue that that patient was having. Yes, I completely agree on all fronts. So pr- prevention, prevention is, is key here. Um, now moving here to early mobility E, I think a lot of us, and this may be more at our, at our smaller hospitals or kind of community health systems. I think a lot of us have been to conferences or we've read papers about, you know, patients who are receiving ECMO or CRT, you know, a lot of these advanced um, support and they're walking in the unit and doing all of these things. And, and I think if you're, you know, I've been at those conferences and seen that. And in my mind, I remember thinking back to my unit and feeling like that that would be like trying to climb Mount Everest with no training. And so I think a lot of us may feel that it's like impossible to help implement our, in our hospital or health system. But what, what changes or, or what strategies can we do to help change the culture around early mobility? And this is obviously multidisciplinary in nature, but what are maybe small steps that, that we as pharmacists could do to, to, to help with this, um, this battle, this thing that is so, so important to, to our ICU patients? I think there's a lot of things we can do. Um, first, like since we're pharmacists, I think it's important to know that it's quite often painful, right, for these people to get up and mobilize. And so um, just educating about that and encouraging giving a pain med before they do um, mobilize is one thing that we can think about. I think a second one is that Dale Needham, right, at Johns Hopkins has this amazing course 
where he teaches all these different physical and occupational therapists about mobilizing critically ill patients. And so I think um, either that course or talking to physical therapists who are world-renowned at doing this, like Chris Permier or Heidi Engel at UCSF, like these are amazing practitioners that we have out there who can educate physical and occupational therapists on becoming uh, comfortable with this. I think the third thing um, to think about is just utilizing your resources, right? I don't know about your institution, but my institution, um, our physical therapists not only have a um, 35-bed medical ICU um, that they're covering, but they also cover our CV ICU. They've got a large number of patients that they're trying to mobilize. So um, I think it's important to remember that nurses can also help with physical therapy, Mm -hmm. you know, that they can help like the less severe patients, you know, like obviously if it's somebody um, that's more severe, that's where the physical and occupational therapy, like their specialty is going to be most beneficial, but a nurse can help a patient like get into a chair or like sit on the side of the bed, like they can do some basic things um, to help um, mobilize the patient. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a common a common thing that I would hear when I was on days rounding would be, you know, oh, we're waiting for we're waiting for the physical therapist, you know, her her appointments later today, or oh, she's not on the schedule until tomorrow. It's like, well, that doesn't that doesn't mean we can't get them up into the chair, or even just have them sit on the side of the bed or do little things until until the specialists and and physical therapists can come. So you know, just doing. Um, it sounds like from what you were saying, every little thing counts and, and that's where the whole team can come and kind of help relieve the, the work burden from our, our physical therapist and occupational therapist kind of workload. Agreed. I'm a big believer and it. it's once again, you talked about teamwork earlier. This is all about teamwork. And then the last, the last portion of kind of the ICU liberation bundle or the way it is now, because I'm guessing it's a living, breathing thing where, you know, we might get G eventually, um, is F or family engagement. And this is probably um, one of the more newer um, kind of initiatives within this is, is having families involved in the care of our ICU patients. So how can we stress to, to providers and to our ICU team the, the importance of family engagement for our critically ill patients? Um, I mean, I think, honestly, that when they see it, then they'll realize the importance of it. So, like, bringing the family into rounds, whether that be, like, obviously somebody's in an isolation room that it's, it take, it's harder for everybody to get gowned up and going in or with COVID as well. But getting the family, like, bringing them out in the hallway or everybody going into the room um, to discuss the patient. And some of the best attendings I work with will look at the family and say, or and the patient too, and say that we're going to talk like in medical lingo for a couple minutes, but then we'll um, put everything into Tennessee, mm-hmm. you know, to explain <laughs> it to you, and which I think is very, um, very cute um, to the patient um, and to the family members, you know, because um, as you're going to those different things, the family can contribute so much um, and tell you things about the patient that you might not um, have gathered. And so I just think that once you see that, that you essentially become um, addicted to it and you realize like how um, much better and that your rounds can be and that how much more information you'll gather if you involve the family. And once again, speaking about physical therapy, this is another um, group of people that can be um, involved um, with physical therapy. Like the, the nurse or the physical therapist, once again, can teach the family members like basic things they can do to the patient. And that's another way 
um, to help like uh, extend resources to help them take care um, of the patient. Yeah, I mean, who who knows the who knows the patient right better than their family? Who knows what their baseline cognition is? Who knows, you know, all the different questions that we may ask or be worried about, right? If there's an acute change in their mental status or they're acting funny, that just might be that just might be who they are, and that person at the bedside can help us with that, save us scans or save us, you know, giving a lot of medications or things. When you think exactly. of this. When you think of this, I know you've probably given lots of talks and discussions on it. Do you have any like classic examples or things that stand out of of a family member, you know, really helping to optimize or improve a patient's care? Um, a specific example, I think. I mean, honestly, like the physical therapy one is a big one. Um, then kind of what you already said too is really just uh, t- like us going through a presentation and then the family member like interrupting, like oh. No, that's not actually true. I'm just like calling out the team and being like, this is actually, is their baseline mental status or no? They haven't taken that medication for months, you know? Like, I think it's always surprising um, to see the things um, that they would tell you. And then obviously, um, with regards to the goals of care too, like when you have a patient that maybe is not within their goals of care, they want it to be intubated and things. It's very important to have the family there um, and having um them involved early on in the care, I think, um, helps establish that relationship and make those decisions that more, um, that much more easily. And, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier how, you know, multidisciplinary involvement, um, with this, with the ICU liberation bundle is such a key for its, its success. Is it how, if, if you're at an institution where um, you feel like there might not be as, as big of a multidisciplinary involvement, maybe it's right now it's just being um, physician driven at the moment or, or what have you, you know, how can we, how could we get more multidisciplinary involvement? Because it sounds like this is a, a key to its success and to have it be work for, for patients in the unit. Having the multidisciplinary aspect of it is key for success. Absolutely. We talked about this briefly before I talked about like people practicing in their silos, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, like the respiratory therapist, like just doing the SBT, you know, but you know, they're going to be so much more successful um, at that if they talk to the nurse who has, um, and they coordinate turning off the sedation. Like mm-hmm. that's key. And then if they, if the pharmacist has, has been involved as a team and helps pick the light sedation, I mean, that's just one example of three different key players on the team being involved um, so that essentially each element can be optimized, you know. And once that happens, then we're going to be able to mobilize the patient um, easier. So that brings in like PT and OT. So I think really just emphasizing that to each different discipline and giving them specific examples so they understand that they can't just practice in their own corner, that we have to talk to each other. And that's why that that multidisciplinary rounds are so important and so that we go through each of these different letters and we talk about uh, giving the pain med before the patient mobilizes. So that's like multiple different disciplines there, like trying to figure out what the best pain med is and then a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant ordering it and then the physical therapist mobilizing patient. I think that's how you essentially optimize the bundle. I'm glad you brought out 
you brought up rounds because this almost feels like this, the liberation bundle almost feels like a testament to the importance of multidisciplinary rounds to really ensure that you're getting a multidisciplinary um, approach and involvement for, for the care of these patients. What do you think about that? Oh, I think you're absolutely spot on because, and I think even on our uh, round sheet that we have, so we're, um, I think one of the keys, if you ask me, like how to optimize multidisciplinary rounds is to have the nurse, um, not the first day, because obviously you need the whole background story of what happened to the patient. But how we do um, multidisciplinary rounds is the resident will kind of give the event overnight after the first day, and then the nurse presents. And so they have this sheet they present from, and the whole first column of that is the A through F bundle. So they'll present the patient and they'll say, like, their CPOT is X, their numeric rating scale is this, I did this, or try to do the spontaneous awakening trial, or I did the spontaneous awakening trial, they did their spontaneous breathing trial, they're on X for sedation or analgesia, they're CAN negative, and uh, the physical therapist is blah, 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 they have family members in the room. Like, that's the first thing um, that they will present. So I really think um, that that's key because each of the different disciplines is there, and as the nurse is going through these different letters, we can talk about how to optimize and to accomplish each of the goals of the different letters. Oh, I love that. Absolutely. Now, you know, we're talking about this kind of per post those um, COVID spikes that kind of happened um, mainly in 2020. Some of us, you know, carried over to 2021. From your experience with it, why did it feel harder to complete and implement the bundle during our COVID peaks and our spikes? Because I feel like, um, you know, reflecting back on the things that you've talked about in here and thinking about our COVID patients, it felt like a lot of those things didn't necessarily get carried forward um, for some for some of our COVID patients. I mean, this is a great question. I'm really glad you asked me this question. So I think there are a lot of reasons that um, people um, were not carrying out the ABCDF thunder during COVID. So I think the first big reason is just the um, the lack of PPE or this concern that we weren't going to have enough PPE. So I think um, with regards to going through the different letters, like the letter A, right, we have to assess patients for pain. So if PPE was a concern, um, honestly, we had to assume the patients were in pain because they had a lot of reasons to be in pain. And so, uh, and hopefully by getting to do um, pain assessments, but if you couldn't do them as much as normal, um, then trying to do like scheduled Tylenol. And once again, neuropathic pain was a big deal in these patients. So providing them with neuropathic pain meds. Um, I think those were key things with regards to letter A. And the letter B, spontaneous awakening trials, um, these patients that had severe ARDS um, with COVID, then some of them required really deep sedation. But that still was no excuse to not talk about it every day on um, interprofessional or multidisciplinary rounds and say, okay, can we try to lighten up the sedation? We absolutely had to talk about it every single day. And I don't know what your experience was in COVID, but there was, um, we at one point had gotten so many COVID patients that there was one team that was essentially like, I didn't know who was going to show up. Like it was, um, we might have had an orthopedic resident and an ophthalmology resident mm-hmm. and uh, a CVICU provider. Like it was people from all over the hospital. And this was changing every couple of days. So um, they, and a lot of them were, um, were, 
and some of them were honestly interns too. So not only had they just started, but they didn't have a lot of experience in the ICU. So I thought more so than, than ever, it was really important to have um, uh, someone there that had been around this a lot and knew how important the ABCDF bundle was and to make sure to discuss this every day on patients to make sure that we tried to turn off their sedation if we could. And then the spontaneous breeding trials, once again, looking at the safety screen, if they met criteria, you still got to try it. You absolutely have to try it in these patients. The letter C, I mean, we could talk for hours on how important the pharmacist's role was um, and is still in some places um, with regards to choosing the appropriate sedation in these patients, not only due to the drug shortages that we already talked about, but absolutely we want these people on as light a sedation as possible. It, um, and then also thinking about the ones that we had to have paralyzed, making sure that they, we were taking triglycerides with propofol. And if we had to put them on a benzo, we put them on the appropriate one. Um, and then, like we said, with drug shortages, um, optimizing which choice um, we made um, based off um, pharmacologic properties, if we got put in that situation. And um, talking about like we did already about their um level of arousal score so we use the RAS so I'll go back to that again so making sure what their target and actual RAS was correlated every day and then we know thinking about the letter D I mean COVID itself causes delirium you know that's why people couldn't smell and they can't taste anything like it invades the brain and so these people were so delirious and then um, when the recovery study came out and showed us that uh, how beneficial the dexmedetomidine was I mean that was wonderful but it also was a huge risk factor um, for delirium in these patients, too. So really, just going through the mnemonics, we talked about earlier Dr. Dre and doing everything that we could um, to prevent and to treat delirium um, in these patients. And then early mobility, I mean, that was, was very interesting in these patients because we still had to mobilize them, but you had to get creative. I mean, even having to walk around the room, you know, was, was something, you know, um, to think about just to do anything to mobilize these um, people. And then the F itself, I mean, we could talk about this for hours. I mean, that was a terrible situation. I know at Vanderbilt initially, um, we didn't have a family um, on-site presence. I think a lot of uh, institutions went through this. So uh, getting creative and using things like iPads and uh, um, iPhones, uh, FaceTime or Zoom, um, to let the family um, see the patient and engage um, with the team, I think is one thing that we've utilized. And then also, um, after a few months of it, we actually did allow uh, family members to come in for two hours every day and they can sit outside the room um, and can communicate um, with the patient if possible through uh, um, some kind of like a, either a tablet or a phone, which I think has been tremendous, not only for the patient and the family members' uh, well-being, but also um, it's been very helpful for the staff, too, um, just to be able to, uh, if they need to have like uh, goals of care discussions and things. I think that's been very, very helpful as well. So I think COVID tremendously has impacted um, the um, bundle implementation for sure. Yeah, the, the thing that stood out to me, so I, I wasn't necessarily on a COVID unit, but the, the two things that stood out to me um, kind of from the from more of like the outside looking in was, you know, I think these these patients 
Um, they would just, they would, you know, any change felt like they would just have precipitous drops in their oxygen and their hypoxia. It felt like it would be sustained. Like a lot of times in other patients, you know, people may drop down and then they shoot right back up um, and from their oxygen status. But in these COVID patients, it felt like they would drop. And then because of the fibrosis and everything that was happening, it felt like it would take a long time to get that number back up. So I think people were scared. Of, of doing some of those things. And then the family piece of it is just, you know, the, the ripple effects from that, from the patient's perspective and how much that probably led to more delirium and things, the toll that that probably took. And I know it took on our nursing colleagues, like having those difficult conversations or those end of life moments with no families. There's just heartbreaking. I feel like that the family portion of it, I feel like that's what I took away from this in COVID is the, the importance of family members and how how big a part they play in our critically ill patients. Oh, I agree with you spot on. I think we learned um, so many lessons. And I think now that we're starting to see some of these people in our um, um, post-IT recovery center and their um, family members, we are even learning more about that as well. So what advice would you give um to somebody who may be listening, who's either A, they're undergoing, trying to implement this bundle, or they're listening to this episode and is like, wow, this is great. I can't believe our ICU doesn't do that. This is what, you know, this is what I want to be working on through the year. Um, you know, what advice would you give to those who are really looking to to implement and, and start the use of the ABCDF bundle in their ICU? Um, I think I would give a couple points of advice. I would say, um, kind of what I head earlier is that you want to start small to so start with like a letter in a couple patients and then it'll kind of like catch on and that everybody will want to do this in all of their patients and then you can keep adding letters until you do the full bundle and I think um really um for people just to not get discouraged because this is um a lot but it's so worthwhile you know to do this and um to not forget that uh um you got to constantly keep teaching with this. Like we were talking about COVID before. Um, we had so many new nurses and we had nurses from all over the hospital, not just NICU nurses, but from every ICU. We had four nurses, we had travelers. Like you constantly have to teach about this. Make sure that they understand how to do a CPOT, how to do um, the CAM ICU, how to do a spontaneous awake trial, et cetera. Like this never goes away. Like you're constantly educating people on how to do this um, every day. So it's just a continued process. And there's a lot of resources out there, not just people like me who are, would love to help you implement this, but we worked we worked very hard um, on the ICE Liberation website. We're actively working on it now. Um, there's tons of resources, and um, there's a toolkit from the ICE Liberation um, group that helps to implement this um, process. There's also, um, we have put on uh, numerous um, different talks about this, obviously covid um, has made that um, more difficult in person, but we gave one um, at 2020 um, at Congress in person. We gave a talk um, on each of the different letters, also gave like, um, had a lab essentially where we had patients and went through different scenarios. So there's a lot of resources out there between the IC Liberation website and also um, my research group um, website, not to sound like an advertisement, but www.icudelirium.org. And um, we have a lot of resources 
to help you with invitation. So don't think you're out there um, alone. Like there's a lot of people out there who want to help you implement this. I don't think that's, I, I think that that's, you know, you mentioned the, the isudelirium.org. I think, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a shameless plug. I think that's a plug for an incredible resource that everyone should be able to, to access and use. And I think, you know, a lot of the things that you hinted on, um, from those resources, you know, we'll include as many as we can kind of in the, in the reference list from this episode, but, um, as, as we were preparing for this episode, I kind of did a little bit of a deep dive, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, the information is out there. You just need to look for it. So you're definitely not alone. There are tons and tons of resources. Um, if you're looking for more from Joanna, she's on a lot of them um, with her expertise and things, and so I think that's, a, that's really good advice, and that's, you are, you're absolutely not alone, and I think that there's, that's a really key message um, because it is a, to truly implement this and have it be a, a protocol and a standard of care for your ICU. It's not one of those where you're going to have three months of education and that's it. It's going to be constant at the forefront of, of nursing orientation and all of your kind of continuing education for everybody in the unit, right? Nurses, pharmacists, physicians, you know, everyone who's, who's working with these patients. So ultimately, a lot of us listening are pharmacists, right, and are in the world of, of pharmacy. So ultimately, what would you, if, if you had to narrow it down and maybe pick a couple things, what would you say is the is the pharmacist role in a successful um, ICU liberation bundle kind of implementation and execution? I like to teach um, residents and students when I'm um, educating them about this, I like to remind them that they can help with every letter of the bundle. I feel like pharmacists get niched into the letter C because that's kind of our baby, the choice of the analgesia and sedation, and that is our area of specialty, but absolutely they can help with every letter. It's important that they recognize that if the pain assessment is not present, presented on rounds, that they ask for it. Like, what is the patient CPOT? Or what is their numeric rating scale? Or helping to, op to optimize, like, what the patient's analgesia um, is. Um, and then also um, thinking about our uh, analgesics, I should say, to treat their pain, um, helping to select those. And then also, um, I play a huge role every day with regards to our spontaneous awakening trials. Um, like the nurses know when they see me, like quite often, like people laugh, but this is true. They're like, okay, I'm going to document it. That's what they'll say because they know <laughs> that I'm going to ask them about the spontaneous awakening trial every day. And so I think uh, the pharmacists, like I said, I think they can be the local champion to help implement this because, um, once again, that's kind of our thing, right? Sedation, analgesia, so making sure that that's talked about on uh, multidisciplinary rounds every day and, it's, and ensuring that if it's appropriate, we turn off the sedation and analgesia to help ensure that the spontaneous breathing trial will be more successful. And then also, honestly, like I've had points where somebody be like, uh, um, why um, did we not do a spontaneous breathing trial on this patient? And I'll be like, oh, they're on five of norepinephrine because that's an exclusion criteria for our respiratory therapist to do a spontaneous breathing trial. So they're on vasopressors, but the team can do it. So just educating them about that so that we can do the spontaneous breathing trial. And I think everybody knows our role with regards to letter C. The letter D, once again, making sure that that CAM ICU um, is discussed and that we are doing everything we can um, to prevent delirium. Like 
going through the Dr. Dre, making sure that it's not uncommon for me to ask as a nurse, like, hey, will you turn the lights on? Um, and then you were talking about sleep before, making sure that we do everything that we can to optimize sleep, talking about um, hearing aids, eyeglasses, et cetera. Like pharmacists can play a huge role there. The letter E, like I'll never forget the first time I asked about early mobility on rounds. I said, hey, um, can we order PT? And uh, the um, resident looked at me and said, this patient isn't on warfarin. So I had to explain that <laughs> physical therapy, <laughs> not the INR. And so, uh, yeah, now it's not, um, obviously it's not uncommon for me, and I teach my uh, residents and students to do the same. Um, but, yeah, we absolutely can screen and assess whether or not it's appropriate for a patient to have um, PTOT and acetate in that consult. And then also, um, it's not um, also uncommon for me to, like, to go get the family, you know, like somebody's always looking for the nurse. I'll help find the nurse. I'll help find the family to involve in rounds. So I think a pharmacist can play a key role in every letter actually. And I think anyone that's listened to, to any of our previous episodes know that sometimes, yes, we're medication experts, but sometimes the best medication is no medicine at all, right? So early mobility, delirium prevention, you know, lowest doses of sedatives, orinogesis, all the things, right? It takes a village and it's all multidisciplinary. So not not getting honed in on, on one letter and looking at all of it is, is really good advice. And hey, what better way... Um, especially if you're, you know, we're in April now. So for those who may be getting, you know, there's a lot of people listening who may have, um, found out that they're getting a new residency position, right? That they may be going to a new hospital or people may be getting jobs and things. I promise you there are a few ways to get nurses on your side more than helping with non-medication things, helping find things, helping grab things like that perspective. So really, really good advice. I, uh, I know I appreciate it and I know the listeners will as well. Thank you. So we're recording this kind of at the beginning of April. I think a lot of us have been lucky, hopefully, to be vaccinated or in the process of it. So, Joanna, what kind of things are you looking forward to do in the fantastic of fantastic city of Nashville now that it's it's spring, summer's coming, starting to get some shorts out there? Um, so I am super excited about this weather. I am a runner, so I love this weather. This is my favorite time of the year um, mm-hmm. to run. I'm excited, like you said, that it's getting pretty enough that I can run outside in um, shorts and I don't have to have on gloves and a toboggan, et cetera, (laughs) um, to be able to run. But, uh, yeah, I'm just excited about that. We have a lot of different greenways here um, that I like to run on um, in the summer. I'm actually in charge of a running group in town. And so um, we can meet just as long as there's less than 25 of us. So I have been able to start that up again. Um, So I'm excited about that, too. Now, so you're a runner. So what kind of races are, do you do like marathons? Do you do like five Ks, half marathons? What's kind of your, what's your, what's the distance you've kind of settled into? I'm a marathoner for sure. Like I, uh, um, obviously it's been a little challenging with races getting canceled and stuff um, within the last year, but I am signed up for the Berlin marathon um, in September. So I'm very excited to train for that. Wow. The Berlin. Okay. That's amazing. So what's your, so obviously that title may change if you're running in Berlin in September, but where's your, where's the, your favorite, what's like the, the race that is kind of number one that you've done, whether it's the city or the race itself, that's just been really cool. Um, so I did the California international marathon, which was in, uh, or is in, I should say in Sacramento, California. Um, and it was just the 
amazing. It's really pretty. The course is point to point. Um, just the crowd is just really energizing. Um, and it was just, it was really fun to go and to run that one. So I think that's probably been my favorite. Oh, that sounds amazing. Which, I, which sounds like, unless it's an absolute just awful weather day, it sounds like I'm guessing Berlin will probably go to the near top of that. Wow, that's going to be absolutely amazing. So, do you have any? Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, I'm very excited about it. So, do you have any? Have you had um, any kind of horror stories in a race of like you're running and it was just like ten degrees, or maybe it was just like pouring down rain at all? Or have you gotten kind of lucky on your race days? Um, I mean, I think every runner's got crazy stories. <laughs> so um, I've learned a lot about myself. Uh, um, I've only actually ran for like the last like um, four years. And so I'm relatively new to running, but I absolutely love it. Um, but uh, since I think I got started in running maybe a little later than some people, I've kind of um, not, I guess I didn't know some of the things um, that people that started earlier knew. So I um, had a couple injuries. So like um, I actually ran a half marathon with uh, a tibial stress fracture and didn't know it. What? So uh, <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. Um, I uh, so that so that was not my best day, obviously. Um, <laughs> um, since then, I've recovered and started doing a lot of strength training and have been injury free for um, over a year. Um, so I feel really good about that. But yes, um, that was not a very good day. Wow. Did you just think it was like a, did you think you were just having really bad shin splints? I didn't know. I really didn't hurt that badly. You know, I could feel like a little bit of like, uh-huh. um, but it, it wasn't severe. I just, something was wrong. Like I could not run like I normally would. and was like, what on earth is happening? And then, um, but I was having some pain until I went and saw my physician and sure enough, I had a stress fracture and I, I was surprised and obviously very frustrated. Um, but yeah. Wow, that just shows your determination, the fact that you did a half marathon on top of that. That's that's incredible. <laughs> we did. I I've I've only done I've done two marathons and um the last one that I did was the Marine Corps marathon out in Virginia. And this was yeah, right that's before a good one. it is. It was great, except for the fact that so it when I say it poured down rain, it was pouring down rain like my feet were completely soaked and it's the marine corps marathon so it's raining and what are people doing they're doing like the they're just going absolutely nuts (laughs) but the problem is if it would have rained the whole time we would have been fine but like halfway through it completely stopped and then it got completely sunny. So my, my wet feet just turned into, they look like just raisins. Yeah. So, (laughs) so we, I found out that I, my application to the Chicago marathon in October got accepted. So, um, in the words of my wife at the end of that race, she goes, well, every race you do now will be easier than this one. So we will be, we'll be putting that one to the test. That's so exciting. Congratulations. That'll be so fun. Yeah, it's, it's nice. You know, you mentioned going to these, to other cities. It's nice when you do it, you know, um, interested in running and things. It's, it's a cool way to, to explore different cities. And yeah, what, I mean, Chicago, New York, Boston, if, if you're ever able to get, you know, able to do some of those, it's one of those opportunities. It's, it's hard to say no to. I agree. Ah, well, Joanna, thank you so much for, for joining us today, um, kind of bringing along a lot of your of your expertise on some of the bundle and challenges that may arise from it. I, I know I learned a lot. I know 
tons and tons of people probably did as well. And I really um, appreciate your time and joining us. Um, if anyone's looking to get in touch, um, you you are on Twitter, right? It's at Joanna CC Farm D. Um, so, are you okay if, if people reach out to you to you on Twitter um, if they have questions or, or want to say thanks? Perfect. Perfect. Well, Joanna, thanks again. Uh, really appreciate your time and, uh, looking forward to, to hopefully talking to you again soon and, and hearing how the, uh, how that Berlin marathon goes. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to see here how Chicago is. Absolutely. Joanna is just the best. So thanks again to her for joining. Um, again, mailbag questions next episode. So be sure to email pharmacy to dose at gmail.com with mailbag questions, suggestions. Definitely got a couple trickling in. Um, as always, open to feedback, positive and negative, as well as any uh, guest or topic ideas. Uh, Twitter at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. As always, the podcast episode description features show notes and reference lists. That's both in the episode um, descriptions as well as the website, pharmacy to dose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.